Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. It's my privilege to continue this series, Following the King, that we've started, and my message title for this morning is Finishing Well. So let's start by reading the passage. We're in Matthew 1, verses 8 through 12. This is what it says. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, and Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, and Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, and Amon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, and Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Now, if you haven't been here for a few weeks, you're probably like, how the heck is he going to make a message out of that? But as we've been talking about for the past few weeks, this genealogy here in Matthew 1, which is so easy to skip, is so important. Why? Because it provides the context that we need to understand Jesus when he comes. I love how Wilson put it a few weeks ago that, if we skip the genealogy in Matthew 1, it's kind of like we're skipping the recap, like the scenes from like last time on whatever show we're watching. It's like we're skipping the recap. It's like we're skipping the um, series of scenes from the last episode that help us remember what happened. And I know that years ago, the recap wasn't as important. Like Back in the day when your favorite show was on on Thursdays at 8 p.m. and you know, you'd watch just one episode, you have to wait a whole week, you'd be thinking about it, like what's gonna happen next, and you watch it again. No, we're in the uh, 2021 where season comes out and you watch all 15 episodes in like 2.3 days, and then 10 months go by and the next season comes out. And you're like, wait, have I even seen this show before? You know, you, the recap is especially important now than ever. Why? Because it gives context. And context isn't just important because it helps us understand Jesus, but context is also important because it helps prevent misunderstandings. So I uh, heard a pastor talking about a problem that he was having in his church a few years ago. Apparently, they had a nursing mom's room where women could go and nurse and watch the message still. Uh, but people kept walking into it because it wasn't labeled. So moms would be in there nursing and people would go in. I don't know what they were thinking they were walking into, the bathroom, whatever. So the pastor had an intern create a sign that would help stop that from happening. Um, but the sign just simply said, stop nursing mothers with no punctuation. <laughs> so for us... We can understand what that means because we have the context, right? The context of this is a nursing mom's room that people keep walking into. The context lets us understand it, you know? The way we understand it is stop, period, nursing mothers. But what if someone who didn't have the knowledge of the context read that as stop nursing mothers? Like, this is an anti-nursing church. We believe no, one, no mom should be nursing their babies. Or, take it a step further, stop nursing mothers. They have to be stopped. We have to do what it takes. <laughs> or, perhaps the weirdest way you could take it, 
stop nursing mothers. Like the mothers are the ones nursing. Like, hey, you're an adult. It's time to move on to solid food, right? <laughs> Context is critically important. It helps, it not only helps us understand, but it helps us prevent misunderstandings. And so here's a list of all those names that we read. All of them, but the last two were uh, legitimate kings. The last two were leaders, but not necessarily kings because they had been taken into captivity. And so here's a breakdown as to whether the kings were good or evil. So first two, starting with King Asa, they're both good. Then we have an evil one, two good ones, an evil one, a good one. And then we have King Manasseh, who was horribly evil in the first part of his reign, but then repented and became good towards the second half, although tragically, his people did not follow him out of the sin that he had perpetuated. So he repented, but he couldn't undo the damage he had done. Then we have Amen, evil, uh, Josiah, good, Jeconiah, evil, and then Shealtiel never really had any significant role in doing anything, but Zerubbabel was <laughs> Zerubbabel was good, and he brought the captives back from, the, from Babylon to start rebuilding the temple. <clears throat> and so of those good kings, the four most famous, Asa, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah, have many positive, yet one troubling similarity. And I want to explore those with our time. So Let's take a look at these kings in more detail. First similarity, each king had a loyal heart to God. So King Asa, from 1 Kings 15, Asa's heart was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. King Uzziah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then King Josiah, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength. So all of, uh, four of these kings had a loyal heart to God. These kings also made great accomplishments during their reign. So we'll start with King Asa. He removed prostitution and idolatry from the land. He even took his own grandmother out of power because of the idolatry that she was perpetuating. So he was committed to cleansing the land of idolatry. He also was productive. He built towers and walls for the kingdom of Judah. And in an epic battle against the Ethiopians, Ethiopians, after he cried out to God in radical faith, God accomplished an impossible victory through them. There was like a few hundred thousand uh, in the army of Judah and like millions of Ethiopians. Um, but God showed up. Then we have King Uzziah. He was successful in battle, and he built and organized the army to a place that it hadn't been before. He upgraded technology. He did other cool things. King Hezekiah, he rid Judah of idolatry, and he even tore down the high places, which the high places were a form of idolatry that most kings were okay with. It was kind of like the compromise. Like, if there's going to be one idolatry, form of idolatry that we're okay with, it's gonna be the high places. But he tore those down too. And then he reinstituted the Passover celebration. And then we have King Josiah, he repaired the temple, and then he cleansed idolatry in the land 
like idolatry in the land had never been cleansed. Like, let me just read to you. It's insane. I'm sh- I bullet pointed it, but look at all that he did. So he burned the articles in the temple that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and other false gods. Did away with the idolatrous priests who had been appointed by previous kings to offer sacrifices to false gods. He removed the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple, tore down the living quarters for the shrine prostitutes that was inside the temple. He defiled the pagan shrines all throughout the land, destroyed the shrines at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, defiled the altar used by Judah to sacrifice their sons and daughters and fired a Moloch. He removed the horse statues from the entrance of the temple that had been dedicated to the sun, burned the chariots that had been dedicated to the sun, tore down the altars that the kings of Judah had built on the palace roof, destroyed the altars that Manasseh had built in the temple courtyards, desecrated, I love that word, desecrated the pagan shrines east of Jerusalem that Solomon built for other gods, smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles, desecrated the high places by scattering human bones over them. Pause there. 340 years earlier, a prophet had approached the reigning king of Judah, Jeroboam, and said, there's gonna be a king named Josiah that gets raised up, and on you, he's going to um, execute the idolatrous priests and burn down the altars you've set up. And so the human bones are significant here because they are um, the bones of Jeroboam, and that prophecy is being fulfilled 340 years later through Josiah. So, uh, tore down the altar, burned the shrine, and burned the Asherah pole at Bethel that Jeroboam had made, demolished all the buildings of the pagan shrines in Samaria, executed the priests of the pagan shrines, reinstituted the Passover, got rid of all of the mediums, psychics, household gods, and idols, and every other kind of detestable practice in Jerusalem and the region. So, these kings accomplished so much good for Judah. They each had hearts that were loyal to God, yet they had one troubling similarity. And that one troubling similarity was this, each king failed to finish well. Each king did a lot of good towards the beginning of their life and then had a big stumbling and fall that they never recovered from towards the end of their reign. So let's read a few of uh, how they stumbled. So King Asa, um, towards the end of his reign, he didn't trust God for protection against a threat, but made a treaty with Syria for protection. And the way that he did that was he gave the gold and silver out of God's temple to Syria in order to make that alliance. King Uzziah, he tried to take over the priesthood in addition to being king, and this was forbidden by God. The king could not be in charge of the nation and the temple. That was for the Levites and the priests only. King Hezekiah became prideful of his possessions and worldly accomplishments, and King Josiah, the one that did the epic idolatry cleansing, he died in battle after engaging in a war into which God was not leading him. And he was probably motivated out of selfish desire for geopolitical advantage when he did so. Each king failed to finish well. And the unfortunate pattern that we see here is this. Even the most righteous of the Lord's, of the leaders of the Lord's chosen people could not lead the people of God 
in a sustained, enduring way. They couldn't lead the Hebrew people into sustained, enduring righteousness, and they couldn't live out sustained, enduring righteousness themselves. And so you can see how this sets the stage for Jesus, who also was a king, right? The king of the Jews. But this king of the Jews ushered in an eternal kingdom that doesn't waver between good and evil, but is always good and always advancing and increasing. And he also empowered his followers, all of us, to do what the kings couldn't, to finish well. We see that in people like George Whitfield, an old revivalist from the 18th century. Listen to this about the end of George Whitfield's life. In 1770, the 55-year-old Whitfield continued preaching in spite of poor health. He said, I would rather wear out than rust out. That's a good word. I love that. His last sermon was preached in a field atop a large barrel. The next morning, Whitfield died. He preached, died the next morning. In the parsonage of Old South Presbyterian Church, Newburyport, Massachusetts, on September 30th, 1770, and was buried, according to his wishes, in a crypt under the pulpit of his church. So I talked to Van earlier, and we decided he's going to be buried right here when he dies. Just kidding. Although it'd be cool. Who thinks Van should do that? <laughs> Mixed re- reaction. So, <laughs> so Jesus made a way for us to not just start well, but finish well. Now, unfortunately, it's still a problem to not finish well today, maybe even more than ever. I mean, I don't know about all of you, but some of my heroes in the faith in the last five or 10 years, news has come out about them as to how they fell. And um, maybe someone that you really looked up to and admired comes to mind. And and even in our own vineyard movement, some of our um, great founding leaders, not John Wimber, but some others, had really hard falls towards the end of their ministries. They didn't, they started well. They did so much good in the middle, but they didn't finish well. So what I want to do then is I just want to take a closer look at finishing well. I want to talk about what did Jesus actually do that allows us to finish well and gives us a way to actually succeed in finishing well that the old covenant kings and people didn't have. And then I also want to take a closer look at how some of the kings stumbled to identify some threats to finishing well. So let's start with what Jesus did. Jesus' death and resurrection impacts our ability to finish well in two important ways. One, we have new natures because of Jesus. And two, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us because of Jesus. So we have new natures because of Jesus. Your nature, it's kind of hard to really define. Sometimes you hear it called identity. Sometimes it's called your heart. Sometimes it's called your core. Maybe you could define it as your like instinctual inclinations. Um, But all of us were born with sinful natures. We had a nature that was inclined towards sin. 
And so what Jesus did is he allowed, he came and his death and resurrection allowed us to get a brand new nature. It's kind of like, um, to give you a metaphor, I had a dog that had a nature to run away as a kid. So I don't know if any of you had, we had a golden retriever and this golden retriever was perfect on almost every way. But the second that Sandy saw the opportunity to run away and explore, she would. And she would run for miles and miles. We'd be driving all around the Corain area trying to find her. And um, it just, no matter how hard we, we trained her, we disciplined her, we had, my mom was out there countless hours in the yard with flags trying to get her to stop running away. Um, we used an electric fence. She'd just run right through that electric fence, you know. And no matter what we did, we could not get Sandy to stop running away. And she ran away until the day that she died. It was just in her nature to run and adventure and explore. And that's why it was so, such a weird uh, experience for me when I would come across dogs that just go outside in the yard, hang out there and come back in and don't run. Like there are dogs that it's in their nature to just stick around. And I didn't understand that. And so you can kind of see that. Um, <clears throat> and so to relate that back to what I was saying, like we all had sinful natures. It was in our nature to sin. There was nothing we could do about it. We could work and those kings, they could um, devote themselves to God over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, everyone in the old covenant, they had an old sinful nature and it prevented them from getting free from sin in the way that um, they wanted to. Us, on the other hand, we were given new natures. And what that new nature means is that now I no longer have a sinful nature, but I have a new righteous nature. Doesn't mean that I never sin still. I sin still sometimes because I have old sinful mindsets that need to be aligned with my nature. But it's not a nature problem that we have anymore. And we take this for granted because it is a huge deal that we live now with righteous, holy natures, unlike people in the old covenant. And so our new nature allows us to finish well. But also the Holy Spirit living inside of us allows us to finish well. And essentially, if we boil it down, what it means that the Holy Spirit lives in you is that you have the ability to partner with God at any given moment. People in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come on them for a time, but he did not live in them. And so they could partner with God when the Holy Spirit was on them, but when the Holy Spirit wasn't on them, they couldn't partner with God. What a privilege we have that literally whenever we want, whenever we want, we can partner with God. That's what it means the Holy Spirit is within us. So that's why we can finish well. But there still are threats that we should be aware of that will impede our ability to finish, or as Paul says, to run this race the way God has called us to. So let's take a look at some of those threats. Here's the first one. The way of our Father, not our Heavenly Father, but I'll explain in a moment. The way of our Father can stop us from finishing well. So going back to King Asa, King Asa was the one that sold, took the gold from the temple, gave it to Syria to protect him from an enemy. Basically what was happening was the, 
Hebrew people, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, at this point in time have been separated into two kingdoms. So there was the northern kingdom of Israel, and this kingdom of Israel was completely corrupt. No redemptive qualities. But then you have the southern nation of Judah. And this is the one that keeps flipping and flopping back and forth between loving God and evil. And so the nation of Judah was the nation that King Asa was over. And um, the northern kingdom of Israel actually comes against King Asa in the latter part of his life and reign. And again, this is the king that had cried out to God in radical faith and seen God deliver him and the armies of Judah from millions of Ethiopians. But instead of crying out to God, Asa tries to form a treaty with a neighboring nation, Syria, to protect them from Israel. And so listen to what he says. He approaches the king of Syria and he says, let there be a treaty between you and me like the one between your father and my father. See, I'm sending you a gift of silver and gold. Break your treaty with King Basha of Israel so that he will leave me alone. I thought it was interesting that he said, let there be a treaty between us like the one between our fathers. And so the way of our father can actually prevent us from finishing well. And when I say the way of our father, what I'm really saying is the way of our family of origin. So when you think about your family of origin, there's probably some of you that have extraordinarily constructive thoughts that come to mind, just of how your family of origin was extraordinarily beneficial to you. I would say that for myself. But then some of you, when you think of your family of origin, you think of harm and toxicity, maybe even abuse. And then I'm sure a lot of you are somewhere in between those two extremes. And so your family of origin can be anywhere from incredibly beneficial to toxic, but because any family is imperfect, there's not gonna be a single family out there that doesn't have at least some dysfunction that kind of exists in it, at least some um, unhealthy ways that it impacts the people that are a part of it. And so in moments of great anxiety for a person, like for King Asa, human beings have this strange tendency to revert, to revert back to the dysfunctional ways of their family of origin. And it could be that they have not acted in those dysfunctional ways for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But eventually, but for some reason, it just seems like a common human experience that great anxiety will come upon a person and they'll revert back to the way of their, of their father, the way of their family of origin. And the reason this happens is that those dysfunctional ways that our families of origin can impact us we fail to understand that they're, it's, they're kind of like an iceberg. Like, you know, the, an iceberg, the distinguishing characteristic, characteristic of an iceberg is that you can see about 10% of it or so, but then the rest of it is under the water and you can't see it. And the same is kind of true with the way that dysfunction from our families of origin impact us, right? That you might be able to see about 10% of it, but there's um, 90% of it below the water that you can't see. 
And so you may get healed from 10%, 20%, 40%, of that dysfunction, but there might still be some of the iceberg, if you will, way down below under the waterline. And then when things get stressful and, ang- and anxious enough, that's when the temptation to revert into that place of what will feel like comfort comes. And I believe that's what was happening here with King Asa, that he had lived his whole reign as king, seeing God provide, but this particular moment became so stressful for some reason, he reverts back to the way of his father. This is why Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, the shocking statement, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, does God want us to bitterly hate our family? No, but he wants us to understand that the way of Jesus always trumps the way of our family, the way of our business that we work at, the the way of our friends, whatever it might be, the way of Jesus always has to be central. And sometimes we're gonna feel tempted to revert to the way of our family of origin, to these other ways, because they feel comfortable, they feel safe, they feel known. But those are the moments that we have to resist and stay anchored in the way of Jesus. Otherwise, tragic falls can come our way like they did for King Asa. So I wanna encourage all of us, we need to allow the Lord to do that deep work in us. Like maybe if you think about some of the ways that your family of origin has negatively impacted you, maybe 80% of it you've been totally healed from, but there might still be that 20%, that 10% down there that hasn't even popped its head up for a while. And I believe actually the Lord in this moment, this time might be wanting for some of you to go and bring healing and freedom down to those really, really deep places. And so as I'm talking about this, I know for some of you, attention comes to mind. Uh, Attention, I'm using that word to describe the tension between two biblical truths that often there are, uh, biblical truths are in tension with each other, meaning that even though they don't actually contradict, when you focus a lot on one, it seems like it contradicts with the other. And the two tensions would be, one, that we should believe that we and have faith in the victorious freedom that Christ achieved for us. But then two, on the other side, we should have wisdom to consider whether there's more healing that I need for that freedom. Like you might hear me talking about the iceberg and think, well, no, Jesus broke every curse for me. Didn't Jesus, doesn't his blood completely free me from all sin and everything that's ever happened to me? Yes, that's one side of the tension. The other side is maybe the Holy Spirit wants to show you that there might be something deeper down there that needs to have that blood reapplied. And so as we're navigating that tension, it could be easy to fall into the fear that you're flawed beyond repair. Like there are probably so many icebergs down there, I might as well just give up. There's no way I'm gonna be able to walk in true freedom. No, don't fall into fear but also don't fall into pride, the pride that you could never fall into those old sins. I think as long as we aren't 
walking in pride or in fear, we'll navigate that tension well. We'll know when to just rest on the truth that Jesus gave us 100% of the victory and that other side of the truth that sometimes we need to consider whether there's something in us that still needs to be healed and freed. Does that make sense? Cool. So the way of our Father can stop us from finishing well. Love for power can also stop us from finishing well. I'm just going to move on from this one. Third, forgetting our dependence on God can stop us from finishing well. Listen to this, uh, and this was all four of these kings. In times of great trial and adversity, in the times where they literally were like, if God doesn't show up, we're all going to die. Those are the times they thrived. And how true is it for us, too, that in those moments where um, we feel like everything's going to fall apart and we cry out, that's when we kind of are consciously aware of our dependence on God the most. But then in the times of victory, in the times of comfort, in the times of peace and prosperity, these seem to be the times where these kings forgot that they, everything that had happened was only because of God and they were fully dependent on God. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It often happens that more experienced people begin to think that they are not likely to fall into the faults and follies of the young. And I care not how old a man may be, even if seven centuries had passed over his head. If he began to trust in himself, he would be a fool and soon he would have a grievous fall. A couple weeks ago, I was studying Mark chapter 10 just in my own devotional time and I was reading a commentary and the commentator started talking about two competing themes that were in the chapter. So this is the chapter where Jesus is talking about how we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of God and then a few verses later he talks about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And as I'm reading what the commentator is saying, the commentator is making the point that Jesus here is contrasting two themes. He's contrasting the utter dependence that children have and then the utter independence and self-sufficiency that the rich have. And so the point then, obviously, is that we need to um, be careful not to fall into independence and self-sufficiency. And as I was saying that, I felt, or as I was reading that, I felt the Lord spoke to me and said, Luke, the less consciously aware of your dependence on me that you are, also the less aware you are of the ways that you're becoming self-dependent. And the more that you are becoming self-dependent, the closer you are to um, stumbling. And I just realized, wow, it is easy in hard times to remember that we're dependent on God. But it can be so easy to forget and not be consciously aware of that when, you know, times are good. But truth is, like, Not a single one of us in here is any less dependent on God than the other. Like, we are all 100% dependent on God 
in every situation in our life. I am 100% dependent on God to be a good husband. I'm 100% dependent on God to do my job well, to be a good father, to be a good friend. And sometimes it can feel like that's not true, but it is. And so um, I feel like what the Lord wants us to do is to be intentional about reminding ourselves of our dependence on God. A few months ago, I started fasting every Tuesday and I fast uh, breakfast and lunch. And I do that for that very reason, to remind myself that I need God. Like every time that I'm fasting on Tuesdays and I, I get hungry, I tell God, Lord, I need you more than food. And we need those kinds of things. I'm not saying do that exactly, but um, talk to the Lord yourself about, Lord, how would you have me intentionally remind myself that I am fully dependent upon you in every way? So forgetting our dependence on God can stop us from finishing well. Pride and accomplishments can stop us from finishing well. Sometimes... It's, it's, it is so easy to experience success and start to get your life and identity from that success. And then lastly, a diminished value for seeking the voice of God can stop us from finishing well. So let's go to the last king that we talked about, King Josiah. This was the king who cleansed idolatry in the land like no one had ever cleansed idolatry in the land. And King Josiah, towards the end of his reign, one day noticed that the king of Egypt had gathered a bunch of troops and was marching, you know, not in the land of Judah, but near it. And so King Josiah, he rallies his armies together and, and they start to go march out against these troops of Egypt. But then the king of Egypt sends word to Josiah and says, Just, King Josiah, what are you doing? I have no business with you. I'm not attacking you. In fact, God told me that he is with me, and if you come against me, you will be destroyed. And, he, and this is like a pagan king, the king of Egypt, who obviously had little to no understanding of Yahweh, the king of Israel. And so Josiah gets this warning from this super unlikely source, but he decides not to heed it. Or listen, I love how this commentator puts it. Such a story must, to say the least, give us pause and make us consider if we are ever justified in refusing to consider a word which is claimed as a divine message, even when it comes from sources from which we should least expect to receive it. You see, Josiah, the king of Egypt, would have been the last person he would have expected to give him a message from God. But this message was coming from God. And so Josiah rejects the message. He disguises himself as someone else, gathers the army anyway. I think the reason he disguised himself was that he was hoping that when they went out and attacked the army at Egypt that they would think it was like some nomadic army and not King Josiah. And so King Josiah leads the army out and they go to attack the army of Egypt and tragically, King Josiah gets shot with arrows and dies right there on the battlefield. Again, this king who had had this unbelievably, I mean, it said, I'll remind you of what, um, what 
it said about King Josiah earlier, that neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength. But what a tragic end to a king that renowned. And so what happened here with Josiah, he had a diminished value for seeking the voice of the Lord. You see, earlier on in Josiah's kingship and in his life, he was constantly inquiring of the Lord, Lord, should we do this? Lord, should we do that? Lord, this army is coming against us. What would you have us do? Lord, um, something crazy that happened with King Josiah is the people of Judah had literally lost the book of the law. Like they didn't have the book of the law for a while. And Josiah refound the book of the law. And so anyways, um, King Josiah was... Uh, for the first part of his life, always taking heed to the voice of the Lord. But again, once you start to experience some success and some blessing and some peace, then you start to make decisions kind of out of your own wisdom, your own strength, your own knowledge. And it's not that God never wants us to do that. It's just that God always wants his voice to be the primary influencer in the decisions that we make. And so because King Josiah had a diminished value for seeking the voice of the Lord, he wasn't able to hear the warning that God had gave him. And that happens for us too. Like as we start to lose some of that tenacity for wanting to know what God thinks, and we start to rely on what we think, we start to miss the words he's speaking to us, the warnings he might be speaking to us to protect us and keep us out of trouble. And so we have to tenaciously hold to a value for seeking the voice of the Lord when it comes to making decisions. Last thing, we need to reject the lie that there are times when we really need God's voice and direction in our lives and times where we only kind of need it. It doesn't matter whether our life is falling apart or better than it has ever been before we need the voice of God. We need to know what he is saying to us right now. We can't rely on yesterday's bread. We need fresh manna every single morning if we're gonna thrive in this life. And if we're gonna finish well, we absolutely need that. So would you stand with me? I wanna pray for us that God would do, you know, you've heard, we've worshiped, you've heard a message, you've gotten information. I want to ask that the Lord now, supernaturally, with his presence, would deposit something in us that would help us to finish well and to overcome these threats against us finishing well. And I want to focus a little bit on the way of our family of origin. I believe for some of you that there, uh, the Lord is gonna do a deeper work of healing in your heart around this than he has before. And that subtle ways that past hurts and past dysfunction from our families of origin have been impacting us are gonna be healed right now. So if that word resonates with you, whether you can think of a concrete example or not, but if you kinda know that, yeah, I think there could be some chunks of icebergs still down there somewhere. Why don't you just put your hand on your heart? 
Holy Spirit, I welcome your presence right now in Jesus' name to come and to release freedom to those places of bondage and struggle that still exist in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us a new way. And we say thank you for, for those of us that had families of origin that gave us so many good things. We're so thankful for them. We say thank you for those, Lord. But for any dysfunction or toxicity or any ways that we have been harmed, I welcome your healing presence to come right now. I say in Jesus' name over all of us, be free from the dysfunction of your family of origin right now. Be free from fears. I see the Lord freeing people right now from fear about money, that in your family of origin, there's a lot of fear and concern about lack, and there's not a lot of trust for provision. I release you from that fear right now by the authority of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. I see the Lord freeing people from insecurity, that there's been low self-worth in, in the family for a long time now, and the Lord is freeing you from that in Jesus' name. You are being freed from low self-worth. You are uh, starting today going to believe what God says about you more than you ever have in your entire life. Thank you, God. So, Lord, I ask that you continue to work in freedom and in healing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.